and welcome. This is a show about the environment, about justice, equity, health. Uh, it's about clean water, clean air, clean energy, and a clean bill of health for everyone in North Carolina. Not sure why we named it The Dirt, but this is The Dirt. And thank you for joining us. I want to jump right in today because there's a lot going on and I don't have a lot of time with y'all today. Joining me here in the studio at WNCU is your Upper News River Keeper, Matthew Starr. Matthew, thank you for leaving your Raleigh safe space to come out here. In the rain, I might add. Yeah. I actually thought that if a river keeper leaves his river basin, he just disappears or turns into a thousand drops of water or something. I'm not sure if we're technically in the Cape Fear right now or if we're in the news, but uh, we are definitely right on the line. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm well and I'm here. Okay. Uh, also here uh, and speaking with us later is environmental journalist from North Carolina Policy Watch, Lisa Sorg. Uh, there's a lot to talk about related to Kimors uh, and a new deal that was struck between Kimors and some environmental advocate groups as well as other issues related to transporting Gen X and some interesting profit numbers that came in and were reported lately related to 2018. But I want to first start by introducing and welcoming Mr. Omar Beasley. He is a longtime Durham resident and community leader uh, in a variety of different capacities over the years, most recently Uh, re-elected in December to another two-year term as chair of the Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People. Mr. Beasley, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on your re-election. Thank you. So I I reached out to you after reading an interesting op-ed that you and other members of the DCABP submitted to the News and Observer Mm -hmm. on the subject of the proposed Durham to Orange County light rail project. And we haven't talked a whole lot about Uh, the light rail project on the show previously. Um, Full disclosure, the North Carolina Conservation Network has been a vocal supporter of light rail over the years. Uh, Quick background, like many municipalities, uh, particularly those experiencing transportation-related growing pains, Raleigh and Durham and Chapel Hill have been exploring the possibility of constructing a 17.7-mile light passenger rail corridor connecting uh, UNC, University of North Carolina Hospitals in Chapel Hill, with Duke University and North Carolina Central here in Durham, uh, and then obviously some additional stops in between there. Who knows, maybe in the future, if that's successful, connecting to Raleigh as well. There have been a lot of hoops to jump through, uh, a lot of consensus to be built between different stakeholders. The project has, there's been a whole lot of money that has needed to be secured or commitments to funding, and that has mostly come together. The project is is moving forward. Uh, I think a lot of people were probably skeptical at the beginning of all this that it would make it as far as it has, but it is on track, so to speak. And um, there are, but there are a couple of of snags Uh, in order for the Durham Orange Light Rail uh, to qualify for federal money that it needs to to get this thing done. Uh, Go Triangle, which is the organization that's uh, moving all this forward, needs Duke University uh, to commit to right-of-way land donations and, and some other things by this week, basically. And the university has been open to this, uh, wants to be a good community partner, but has some pretty significant concerns because the uh, route of the light rail project goes 
right up next to its facilities um, just to list some of the concerns, preserving safe emergency access to their trauma center. Uh, They're concerned about potentially negative effects of light rail noise and vibration on sensitive medical and research operations, uh, preserving a buffer around some of their research facilities, maintaining safe pedestrian entrances to the hospital, uh, and and a number of other concerns. And so... uh, so the project is is kind of you know at a crossroads related to to Duke's um, participation in this, but there have been a lot of debates and discussions over the course of this thing about uh, how beneficial this will really be. Is it going to be worth the cost? Uh, how disruptive is it going to be? And also, is this going to be beneficial to you know the the longtime residents of Durham to the black community in particular who have seen transportation projects over the years disrupt the community in very negative ways. And uh, so, Mr. Beasley, you wrote uh, an enthusiastic, optimistic, uh, I would say, uh, pro, conditionally pro light rail piece on behalf of the DCABP. Um, I think, you know, you kind of expect city leaders and go triangle uh, and developers and, and maybe some environmental groups who, who maybe see some, you know, greenhouse gas reduction benefits to this to be behind a mass transit project like this. But I'm really interested in how the committee uh, came to their uh, you know, endorsement, I suppose, of this idea. You know, the 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 Durham Committee on the Affairs of Black People go back 80 some years. 84. Yeah, 84 <laughs> years. So. Uh, that's a long history, a, a long memory that was uh, sh- in the midst of New Deal redlining practices uh, that discriminated against black neighborhoods in Durham uh, with regard to home loans. That was uh, just before um, the Durham Freeway was constructed through the heart of Haiti to break up Black Wall Street, one of the most powerful, uh, self-sustaining economic uh, vibrant black communities in America at the time. So I would imagine there is a lot of skepticism um, from the black community in Durham about whether this will benefit the community. Will it? Well, uh, first, let me let me uh, correct you. Uh, I did not write this alone. It, it was it sure. was a collective effort. Uh, our housing chair, who's Stella Adams, and our uh, economic chair, Henry, Dr. Henry McCoy, who's a professor over here at North Carolina mm-hmm. Central. Um, we all got together, and, and there were several, um, several editions of this letter before we finalized, okay, this is what we're going to go with. Uh, because when we met with our general body the previous Thursday, there was a lot, a lot of opposition, um, but also a lot of support in the room. And and all that centered around those concerns that you mentioned earlier, the red, you know, the uh, the decimation of the of, of uh, the black Wall Street, let me say, and, and the black community with 147 when it was came, when it came through uh, the, the history of the Durham committee uh, supported 147. And those um, those issues that we raised then they weren't addressed. Uh, you know, people sold their properties, sold their businesses and moved. Um, but we weren't able to sustain the uh, the vibrant community and businesses that we had at that point um, once 147 came in. Um, but why we support this project now? Uh, we wanted to make sure that the black community um, 
are participants in this project, not only when it's done, but throughout the process. And, and to be honest with you right now, the only reason why we're being brought in and and, and we're not we're not, we weren't in from the beginning, uh, because truth be told, this project has been talked about for 10, 20 years. So, I mean, and the only reason why we're talking about it now is because it's almost being derailed. So, you know, <laughs> you hate to use the pun here. Um, so easy. And and um, so we, 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 we've been asked to, to voice our opinion on it. And we know that there's possibly a lot of um, positive outcomes from this, but we have to be intentional and deliberate, not us alone, the city, county, as well as Go Triangle. We have to be deliberate in making sure that the black community's voice is heard and we're players throughout this project. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of development, a lot of construction. Uh, we got to make sure that we have seats at the table, not just uh, in, in those jobs and construction, but the two, the two top level positions in Go Triangle are, are, are two white individuals. Uh, that now the next level of, of individuals, you know, the, uh, I think there's seven of them. Uh, three of those sevens are, are black individuals, but none of them are from Durham. That's an issue. So not, not only are we looking at, you know, what the demographics of, of color, you know, speaking of race of, of these people that are making these decisions for this project, but where are they from? So we want to make sure that not only do black individuals from this community have a, a voice at this table, but if you're not black, you know, where are you from? Are you from this community? Because you have a better understanding of who we are and what we need and the history of this community. Yeah, and I think, you know, for people who uh, are unfamiliar, not from the Triangle, and, and we have some listeners online who, who are not, um, the, Durham, Durham has seen a rapid transformation mm -hmm. over the past 10, 15 years. Especially you know, downtown. Especially downtown. Mm -hmm. And you go downtown and, uh, you know, the, it, it, there are many fewer visible uh, black-owned businesses Absolutely. downtown. It is... Um, so there's there's a the the gentrification mm -hmm. that is taking place in Durham is is impactful. And I guess, you know, what uh, part of part of what was in the op ed that that y'all put together was kind of a almost a blueprint uh, recommendations, mm -hmm. commitments. I mean, you, what you mentioned before uh, about 147, it, part of this is about um broken promises mm -hmm. uh, from stakeholders, people mm -hmm. who, you know, they're going to sell you one thing. And then when it comes down to everything, you're getting something else. You're not getting anything and you're just having to leave. So you've got some things that you think uh, people need to commit and follow through with that will preserve uh, some of the black identity, culture and, and economic well-being of the of the historic communities here, I'm wondering what a couple of the policies or commitments that would ensure this goes well for Durham look like to you and, you know, who are the people who can make it happen, who can who can pull those levers uh, so that, you know, listeners and, and, and anyone else can hold those people accountable mm -hmm. who who should be making these decisions and what should what should they be doing well one thing that we've been working on and, and this is um aside from the light rail but it, it we can tie it into the light rail is uh we've asked uh city the, the mayor and the city council members to um uh, to help establish uh, an investment fund for black business and other low-income uh people to save and upgrade their homes along the light rail 
as well as um, um, a business, a business, you know, est established businesses along those uh, along that rail. And uh, it'll, it'll prevent people from getting displaced from high taxes. Um, also associated with that, we want to make sure that uh, in in let me say this. A lot of these people who own homes along this light rail, they, they, they and particularly the African-Americans, they, they have an opportunity to benefit, you know, by selling their homes. But what we want to do is try to make sure that they have an opportunity to stay if desired. So um, a fund like this would allow that, you know, a, a, a grant, help these folks fix up their homes so they can stay in it. So they, they won't be a, a victim of gentrification. So those two things is, is that we're trying to make sure that the city officials and county officials will help make sure uh, that we address the integrity and the character of those neighborhoods. That makes sense. Um, and, I, you know, I think one thing that we've seen with other transportation projects is the business aspect of this there will be development around mm -hmm. all of these different stops that the train makes along the way and businesses that will pop up and loans that will be given out and you know all of this stuff and you know are they going to be handed out to the people who uh, are already rich the people who already have personal connections with the financial um, dealers you know what is that what is that going to look like how do you encourage um, leaders to to make sure that that the the local business owners have a chance yeah. to instead of moving you know having to move your business out of the way of the light rail mm -hmm. to just disappear or to move somewhere completely different that, that, like that, so many one forty seven businesses did how do you keep them like a block away and let, let me say this um in, in the policies that we just talked about I mean they have to be done unapologetically deliberate and intentional with the purpose of being equitable or, or, or correcting the inequity that, that exists in this community. As um, as liberal and progressive as our city council and our local uh, leaders proclaim themselves to be, this shouldn't be a problem. This shouldn't be a problem. So we want to be the most progressive city to, in, in the United States that we proclaim to be. This should be Step number one in correcting the social ills that exist in the United States. And we should be that model city and setting forth uh, uh, an investment fund or, or a grant program for um, African-American and black and brown people, uh, businesses and housing grants should be the first thing they do when you're talking about bringing a light rail through this community. The committee your committee makes a lot of uh, political endorsements. I think that's a huge part of the influence. Um, are, is this an issue that would be top of mind next time around uh, when you're considering who to, to recommend supporting or not recommend supporting? Not, not necessarily the light rail because we feel that's coming. I mean, we really feel, but these policies are they absolutely are, are going to play a factor i mean if if uh some of these folks vote against a, a policy like this you know they they, they push for uh, participatory budgeting they got that through if you oppose something like this but yet and still you support participatory budgeting you know it, it just doesn't look right so you mentioned earlier that uh you'd been uh asked or the committee had been asked to speak out on this mm -hmm. given your support and I know that you've had a lot of conversations with a lot of different stakeholders I'm wondering who asked you 
and what what conversations you've had with who and what, what that's kind of looked like? Well, we were asked two years. I want to say it was at least two years ago uh, initially. Um, and they asked us to get involved with the conversations that they were having around town about light rail. And we were. And I and I was looking at the um, the stops at that point. North Carolina Central didn't have a stop. And I was like, excuse me, am I allowed to curse here? I said that was some BS. There we go. That's <laughs> so um, I was like, how do you have three or four? It was actually like almost five stops at or near Duke, three stops at or near UNC, but not one stop at Central. And I was like, that's a problem. I said, North Carolina Central nor Durham Tech have stops. And this is this here project is through uh, federal money city and county money and North Carolina Central can't get one stop, but yet and still you put five at or near a private institution. That's a problem. So we, we were brought in and we've been vocal about this for at least two years now. We were asked to jump on board right now because this project is really in jeopardy of being derailed, as I said earlier. Um, and when we talked about this amongst amongst our uh, general body, our, our, our membership, you know, those concerns that we that we wrote about in the um, op ed, we 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 as the leadership of this organization have to make sure that we're participants of this uh, of this light rail go triangle project and not ran over by it. So that's why we're here. Uh, Go Triangle approached us, city officials approached us, county officials approached us, and we sat down and we had a lot of conversations centered around our concerns. Not necessarily what they wanted us to say, but what we had to get out. You know, we was like, okay, we can do this because we, we see the the possible benefits. We They're absolutely there. And if we're not at the table, you know, we're not going to benefit. We're not going to be able to say, okay, we need to have uh, – you know, Durham, Durham the, the, the makeup of Durham, African-Americans, we're almost at 40 percent here. You know, we can say, well, we want to have 30 to 40 percent black participa- participation throughout this entire project. And if we're not voicing that opinion in front of the support of this project, we're not doing what we're supposed to by our constituents. All right. Well, we have to head to a break, so I think we're going to leave it there. Mr. Beasley, thank you for coming and talking to us today. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Welcome back. So I want to start the second segment today with the chemical contamination saga that has been plaguing the Cape Fear River and to a certain extent, uh, the entire state, the entire country, the entire world. Um, Once upon a time, 30 years ago, a tiny little company known as DuPont began discharging a chemical compound known as Gen X into the Cape Fear River near Fayetteville. And it ran from there downstream through Wilmington and out to sea. Uh, Gen X, for those who don't know, and we've talked about this a lot on the show, but for those who don't know, it is in a family of perfluorinated compounds that are linked to adverse health effects, uh, linked to cancer in animals. A lot is unknown about it so far, uh, but it isn't good, and it persists in the environment for thousands of years. So a couple of years ago, it was discovered, this discharge was discovered by the public in the Cape Fear Public Utility Authority, and 
it began a public debate and dialogue uh, and attempts at cleaning up uh, and requiring Kimors, which is a spinoff of DuPont, to begin to end discharging it and to begin cleaning it up. And as it happens, they were not just discharging Gen X through the water. Uh, they were also discharging it through the air. So uh, 250,000 people had contaminated drinking water in Wilmington because Gen X is difficult to filter. And several, I don't know, dozens, I guess, wells around the Fayetteville site uh, were contaminated. Drinking water wells were contaminated because Gen X was put out through smokestacks and then landed uh, upstream and was washed into wells and seeped into groundwater and, and that kind of thing. So a lot of people have been impacted by this stuff. There's been a gigantic fight underway uh, on the part of a lot of different stakeholders to get a handle on this. And here we are this week. Kimors uh, has come to uh, a, a consent order with the Department of Environmental Quality and Southern Environmental Law Center representing the Cape Fear Riverkeeper. Uh, and it is a legal order that will bind them to certain protective acts. And so to talk about this, I've got Matthew Starr and Lisa Sorek here. I guess let's start off with what is in this consent order. Um, are you impressed by it? I'm cautiously, I don't know if I want to say optimistic, but I'm just cautious. Um, I understand why some of the provisions are in there. I understand, I think, why $12 million. I'm not sure how that came to be, but I understand that there was some calculation made. I would argue that that's very little for a company that earned uh, $6.6 .6 billion, with a B, dollars in revenue last year. I mean, $12 million is like if you or I lost $5 in the dryer. Um, they basically are going to turn over their couch, and the change is going to fall out. Um, but I do think that, you know, enhanced monitoring, they're going to have to characterize the river sediment. They have to provide alternate water supplies. I mean, there are positives. It's just I don't trust the company. Right. And and I don't think anyone should trust the company. DuPont, uh, prior to spinning off Kimors and contaminating the Cape Fear with Gen X, DuPont was contaminating the Ohio River and communities in Parkersburg, West Virginia and Ohio with uh, PFOA, PFOS, uh, C8, a cousin to Gen X that is extremely harmful, known to be extremely harmful. Gen X just probably is extremely harmful. And they, I mean, they've lied and they've covered this up over the course of time over and over and over again. Absolutely nothing that they have ever done demonstrates a, a trustworthy nature to the way that they do business. It is kind of deceit is built into the model. So, yeah, no one should trust them. I think part of what this agreement does, and in addition to the $12 million fine, there's another million dollar like fees, basically, that is on top of that. Uh they have to submit to more frequent reporting uh, of their air emissions. They've got to do the soil sedimentation. I have a question about who's actually conducting that. Um, they have to. One one interesting thing is Gen X is not the only perfluorinated compound being put into the river at the Fayetteville work site or by other uh, chemical manufacturing facilities up and down the river. But there are there's a, a cocktail of different compounds, most of which don't even have names, and we know very, very little about. According to this 
order, they are now required to provide a list of all of the, the known compounds that they're either producing or that might be produced uh, in the course of uh, their wastewater processes. That's a whole different thing. But that's good. And they have to provide uh, known methods of testing for this so that DEQ and the Cape Fear Riverkeeper can look for it when they're sampling. Uh, that seems to be a positive development. Yes, right? and they have to do non-targeted analysis, which means they have to look for what they don't even know is there. I think that people are still upset because, you know, their lives have been upended. I, I don't blame them for being upset. I didn't. I don't really see another way that's quickly could this could be resolved. And I don't. And I say resolved in quotes. I ask, you know, why was this a consent order and not maybe a criminal trial? But a criminal trial would take forever, and I think that is true. I mean, of course, we we like to see people punished for wrongdoing, but sometimes that takes longer than we have. Well, so <laughs> uh, punishment is an interesting word that you use. There's there's a in addition to the fine, which I think everyone agrees is paltry, given how much money that they are raking in. There is a list of penalties that should they violate any of the provisions of this agreement can be enforced. And, you know, I was looking at, I don't have it in front of me at the moment, but it is, I, I have been heard it described as strict and, and maybe it is compared to penalties, similar penalties levied against other companies in other consent agreements. But uh, historically, those kinds of penalties have been absurdly low and these to me are still absurdly low you're, you're talking about thousands of dollars tens of thousands of dollars for violations and and even though uh, some of these violations the the fines accumulate so for example if you uh, you know if you begin discharging again and they find it you're you're tar charged like 10 or 14 or 20 some thousand dollars every single day until it is verified to have been cleaned up so that can build up however when you make as much money as Kimors does, they, the profit alone was a billion dollars plus. So that means in profit alone, they are making two and a half, two point seven million dollars a every single day. What is this fine going to do? Who, Matthew? Would you be swayed? Would you stop doing something because you were, you know, you had to throw a dime away every single day? I mean. As a river keeper on a nonprofit salary, yeah, dime nice well, way. Right. But, I was going to say that was making, $5 making in the dryer. Dollars. Um, you know, but, and, and we see this kind of across the board with different fines for different penalties. Um, it comes down to contaminating our water, our communities, affecting our health. And, you know, while $10,000, $40,000, $80,000, seems like a huge deal to us it's really the cost of doing business to them and it's not only about them being held accountable it's you know i haven't seen any remorse either that that you know well kimor says kimor says that they want to be good neighbors in fact they say that they were planning to do most of this all along sure uh, it's yeah. easy to say you're going to do that after the fact that someone has told you you have to 
That's right. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a, that's an easy statement to make. I'm not impressed with that statement either. I mean, I, I think that they they have not shown good faith, in my opinion. You know, they had that tr- that tanker spill last September where they said it was rainwater. It turned out it was huge or uh, very high concentrations of Gen X. And and then they didn't disclose all their air emissions for a long time. I mean, come on. If this were if this were your kid, you ground them for till they were 18. And, you know, speaking of the the tanker thing and the water spilling out, I mean, another thing that we haven't discussed uh, that you've written about is how North Carolina has become a dumping ground for Kimor's and Gen X waste coming from the Netherlands. What's happening with that? What does that look like? Well, there's a lot of discrepancy or questions that have not been answered to the EPA or DEQ so far. I've filed some records requests trying to get them. And so basically what happened is Gen X, uh, Fayetteville, and this plant, the Kimor's plant in Dordrecht, the Netherlands, which is near Rotterdam, they basically swapped Gen X. You know, they imported and exported. They sent it away for um, recycling and reclamation. Then it comes back. I have an open records request into the state port to find out exactly what we're talking about. But we're looking at 99 tons of this material a year. Um, I'm assuming that it's then trucked by or transported by rail because there's a rail line that goes right to the Fayetteville Works plant. So you also, thinking about rail, you have to worry if there were a spill along the rail line, what would happen? And so Secretary Regan says no matter where this Gen X is coming from, it's covered by this consent order. In other words, it can come from the Netherlands. It could come from West Virginia. It can't be discharged into the river. Okay, I'll, I believe that. But the point is, why do we need to accept it? And, and why is it coming? Yeah, why is it coming? Yeah. And according to DEQ, they don't really have any say-so over these federal transport laws. And so we have to accept it. I mean, when you, when you think about that and you think about the cumulative impact and you think about how eastern North Carolina has become a dumping ground for many different types of pollutants by other foreign-owned companies— it, it's really a disservice, not only to our environment, but to our neighbors in eastern North Carolina. And no one deserves this. It's, 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 it's just infuriating. Well, yeah. And, I mean, you know, we'll talk about the hog uh, industry as well, um, basically using eastern North Carolina as uh, the world's toilet. Uh, it is, you know, and it, it's not... It's not just Kimors, right? The chemical manufacturing industry in North Carolina is massive. People don't realize how many chemical manufacturers are doing business here and more and more every day. I, you know, Governor Cooper sends out these notices about different business entities that are getting grants uh, to come do business here. And every now and then I will see a chemical manufacturer or, you know, somebody who's making products that you know, probably are using Gen X or some other kind of. So we know that Kimors is doing it. Who else is Cure, which owns a facility at the Fayetteville work site, are you know where are they shipping chemicals? So it's not just what goes in to the river; it's what's being transported. Haven't even talked about firefighting foam, which is used all over the place uh, and washes into these same chemical compounds, wash into the river that way. But the transportation is, issue is really interesting to me because it's not something that people think about a lot. 
you know, you see trains going by and you always wonder, hey, what's in that? What's in that? And, well, maybe really dangerous chemicals that are, you know, compounds. Um, it's scary. Uh, it's scary to think that there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, you spoke with Secretary Regan. What what was your takeaway from that? My takeaway was that the secretary is pleased with the consent order. He feels that they need to be very vigilant in monitoring and doing split samples, which means they get one, you know, the DEQ will get part of a sample and Chemors will get the other, and that way they can compare results, that it's going to take an enormous amount of oversight. I was at a, an air permit hearing about Chemors on, I guess it was Monday, and there was a former DuPont worker there. He'd been there. He'd worked there for 40 years. He had just he started there right out of high school, and he no longer works there. And he told DEQ, you are going to have to watch these folks. I mean, this is from somebody who used to work there. Right. Well, so, I mean, look, that's the problem, right? Because even in the best of circumstances with the most cooperative of private entities, the Department of Environmental Quality doesn't doesn't have the resources to... Understaffed, underfunded. Right. So... How, I'm very curious as to how the secretary, like, you know, confident he can be that they will be able to do this. Um, and we're in for another budget round soon. So what will happen if they get further mm-hmm. cuts? I mean, right. Right. That's coming up. And, you know, we talk, I feel like it's the thing that we repeat over and over and over and over again on the show. You got to give the regulators more money. Because well, uh, it's important because, I mean, we just saw the EPA host of a, a, a shell of a we're going to do something around perfluorinated compounds, basically saying, you know, we're going to take a few more years to do the same thing we said we were going to do a few years ago. So, it, I mean, it's ridiculous. That federal backstop is gone. So that's why it's so important for folks who realize and understand that having a well-funded, well-staffed, well-equipped Department of Environmental Quality is going to do more to protect our health, our environment, and our communities than we can count on for the federal government for the for the future. Yeah. yeah. And I would say politically empowered. And I think there, you know, it's true. All that is true about their funding and their staffing. But I think we have to be holding them accountable to make sure that that isn't an out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, and this is just my opinion, that there's a certain amount of fear that, the, you know, the legislator, there are some very anti-DEQ legislators who hold the purse strings, who are in charge of appropriations. And I don't think they want to upset them. I, I think that I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, just to circle back really quickly to touch on what Matthew referenced, I think a lot of environmental groups uh, were kind of fooled for a second when EPA said, hey, we're going to, you know, come out with this thing about performing compounds about PFAS and recognize, you know, that it's something that needs to be addressed. And everyone was cheering it. And then it actually is an intent to study it further, basically to kick the can down the road so that they don't actually have to take any action on PFOS at the federal level anytime in the foreseeable future. So uh, for anybody who saw some cheering from environmental groups early in the beginnings of that announcement process, it's bad, folks. It's Mm -hmm. It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. It's what you would expect from this administration not the other way around. A nothing burger for sure. A nothing burger for sure. So, but not a pork burger. <laughs> not a pork tenderloin. Not a pork tenderloin. Okay, we're going to take another break and we're going to stick with Matthew and Lisa here for a few more minutes. When we come back, we're going to talk about 
the hog industry and some stuff that went down in Keenansville, North Carolina this past week. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Now, this past week in the small town of Keenansville, North Carolina, population about 850, uh, people from across eastern North Carolina gathered together in a packed auditorium to debate hog waste, public health, environmental racism in front of the regulators charged with solving environmental problems and protecting communities from the negative health impacts of pollution. We were there. Here's what we found. There was a chilly rain beginning to come down as hundreds of men and women squeezed into the entryway of James Sprunt Community College in Kenansville, North Carolina. We were there 30 minutes before start time and already a long sign-in line had formed full of people concerned about how the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality might be changing the way the hog industry in Duplin County and across the state is regulated. See, it's not unusual for industrial hog operators in North Carolina to house thousands of hogs in rows of tight bunkers that dot the countryside. There are around 9 million hogs in the state, and each of these animals produces around 11 pounds of manure every single day. How that waste is disposed of is governed by a swine waste management system general permit drafted and revised by the Department of Environmental Quality every five years. The next five-year permit draft has been released, and the meeting in Keenansville was intended to collect public input. And the public had a lot to say, because the factory swine industry, which didn't begin to boom until the late 80s and 90s in North Carolina, the industry has particularly noxious methods of disposing of that waste. And traditionally, the feces and urine from all of these hogs falls through slats in the floors of the hog houses and is stored in open-air cesspools that the industry calls lagoons. The liquid forming at the top of these pools is often sprayed onto nearby fields, theoretically as a fertilizer, though it's commonly applied in far greater volumes than the crops and soil can absorb. The rest is washed into local streams and rivers, causing toxic algal blooms and fish kills, among other problems. Meanwhile, when the manure and urine is sprayed across the fields, it creates a fecal mist that drifts on and even inside of neighboring homes. Duplin County Commissioner Jesse Ladson described moving back home to eastern North Carolina and experiencing the impacts of this practice for the first time. I returned home in 2008, and we were outside barbecuing, and all of a sudden, the wind changed, a little mist came, and I asked her, I said, Mom, what in the hell is this? <laughs> and she said, baby, they're raising hogs. I said, raising hogs? And my father said, no, baby, they mass-producing hogs. Another speaker, Dr. Robert Parr, who practices emergency medicine in eastern North Carolina, pointed out that the impacts from factory hog production to local air quality and health may be substantial. Uh, if you look at the health statistics for the counties in this area, they're abysmal. Uh, Duplin County, on a scale of 100, 
ranks sixty eight and health score the number one you want to be number one people in county sixty eight sampson county seventy nine bladen counties ninety five and columbus county is ninety six everybody in this room would be healthier right now if they had breathed cleaner air throughout their life now over half the auditorium was full of hog producers in the area and their families and friends or representatives from pork industry lobbying groups like the Pork Council or from astroturfed corporate activist groups like the North Carolina farm families. Most of the hog producers in eastern North Carolina work in some fashion for Smithfield Foods, which is a subsidiary of WH Group, formerly Shuang Hui Group, a $20 billion company based in China that is the world's largest pork producer. The producers repeatedly attacked clean water advocates and the community members concerned about the quality of their air and water. And the producers emphasized displeasure at provisions in the draft permit, particularly with regard to transparency, i.e. reporting requirements and inspections. Unspoken, but certainly not unfelt for much of the night, was one glaring fact. Smithfield's hog producers were mostly white, and the communities their swine factories pollute are more often than not communities of color. Duplin County resident Elsie Herring finally put it to words. My name is Elsie Herring, and I live in Wallace, North Carolina. And thank you for allowing me to speak, and I'm grateful for the recommendations that DEQ has put forth but I don't think it's gone far enough. This was about the Title VI, which is based on the 1964 Civil Rights Act that says, corporations cannot take federal funds and discriminate against minorities. The industry knows very well that these facilities are located in people of color and low income communities. We need for that to be on the front burner mm-hmm. when this decision, these decisions are made about these permits being issued. Mm-hmm. Representative Jimmy Dixon, a Republican in the North Carolina legislature who has pushed for pro-industry laws that would eliminate longstanding property rights protections for impacted families such as Ms. Herring's, was also in attendance. And after she and others made similar remarks, he decided to stand and deliver what can only be described as an outright lie. I want to correct and go on record with one misrepresented fact that you have. And that is that our animal facilities disproportionately affect the minority communities. That is false. You see, I was obedient to your rules. I'm addressing you folks. I don't deserve what I just received. Here's the truth. If you take our animal facilities and you measure one half mile from them, it is 62% white. Fact check me. Let me, let me, let me, let me. 
Dixon is flat wrong, and decades of academic research and empirical evidence demonstrates the disproportionate impact hog operations have on rural black communities, indigenous communities, and Hispanic communities. In 2014, the Department of Epidemiology at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill released a study showing that the proportion of people of color living within three miles of an industrial hog operation is one and a half times higher than the proportion of non-Hispanic white folks. Now, a study several years before that from Eastern Carolina University and Loyola found that even when controlling for several other factors, Eastern North Carolina counties with larger minority populations were home to greater concentrations of hog waste. And just last year, Duke Health put out a study finding that more African-American and Native American residents live in zip codes with industrial hog operations compared to those living in areas without such facilities. They also found that death rates of all studied diseases, including infant mortality, anemia, kidney disease, septicemia, and tuberculosis were higher in North Carolina communities located near the large industrial hog operations. So, yes, it impacts certain people more, and it is harmful. To put an emphasis on that point, a retired nurse from eastern North Carolina stood and spoke about his experiences as a young boy growing up near some of these operations and the importance that he sees in maintaining clean water. Hello, I'm Dean Stubbs. Um, I'm a country boy that grew up, got his nursing license, worked for over 40 years, and have retired in the city now. Um, Water is life, and nursing has always been an important thing to me. When I was a child, we had a neighbor that was about two, three miles away. The way the crow flies, and uh, when the wind was right, we stayed inside. They were nice, but there wasn't. Um, Some of the employers around here are fair, and they care, I guess, and some aren't fair, and they don't care. From what I understand, recent verdicts show low-income minority neighborhoods just have to deal. That's not right. I can't imagine the smell that they have to deal with, let alone the health hazards involved. That smell is one that lingers and is never forgotten. The tourists and the fishermen and people that come to the area around the river walk around Wilmington, catch the stench, and I bet it's a long time before they come back, maybe if ever. Uh, If the water was treated before it was sprayed, it it might make it safer. Water is life. Uh, in, In nursing, we used to have OSHA come and do surprise inspections. And that kept us on our toes, not that we were trying to hide anything. And not saying that anybody is trying to hide anything. But maybe some surprise inspections in this might help. Okay. So I'm back in the studio with Lisa Sorg and Matthew Starr. Matthew, you were uh, at the event uh, yourself. What was your impression? What was your takeaway? Yeah. So I mean, Jimmy Dixon. 
Well, you know, you said earlier we couldn't swear on the show, so um, <laughs> the auditorium was packed. I mean, truly packed. There was no, you know, no seats available, and which is a good thing. That means the community came out. The community came out to be heard. Uh, homeowners, business owners, doctors, uh, local officials, uh, folks with the industry, environmentalists were all there to speak on this draft permit. And I think overwhelmingly you heard that the permit needs to change. The draft permit reflects many of those changes and DEQ needs to stick to it. I think two of the biggest takeaways for me uh, were one, the, the, you know, there was no discussion of racial disproportionate racial impact really until Elsie Herring stood up about halfway through this process and and called it out. I mean, it was this unspoken thing in the room, uh, but it wasn't explicitly mentioned until she brought it up. And then several people after that did. And then, of course, we heard the comments from Representative Dixon, which are uh, just outright false. I, I will call it a lie. It is a lie because there's absolutely no way that you can be as steeped in this issue as he is and not be aware of the decades and decades of academic research demonstrating the impact on communities of color in North Carolina from industrial hard Oh, he's aware. He just refuses to believe. So I, and I don't know where he came up with the whole uh, well half mile is 62% white thing. I don't care, honestly. Uh, his point was it's false to say that there's a disproportionate impact on black folks in rural North Carolina. That is not true. He knows that it's not true. And, you know, once again, there is uh, a leader, a person in power, an industry in power that is erasing the experiences and concerns of an entire group of people in North Carolina. It is absolutely ridiculous. And I hope that the Department of Environmental Quality was hearing that uh, when they go back to you know finalize this permit and, and take all of the public input into consideration. It's a, this is a better permit than the than the last one was, um, by several if, measures. If, if if the proposed changes make it to the final, Correct. definitely better. Correct. And some of those proposed changes are a result of a Title VI suit that was brought against DEQ. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Yes. So, so there has to be disproportionate impact, yes. or the EPA would not have said yes. There are grounds to yeah. Exactly. So it's ridiculous. The other thing that that really struck me, uh, theme that really struck me, I suppose, was, uh, well, one, the hog producers um, repeatedly described themselves as like environmentalists and environmental friendly and, you know, this kind of thing. OK, uh, <laughs> but the the big thing was this animosity from industry towards any measure of transparency and accountability whatsoever. Uh, I mean, you know, this this is honestly the permit is asking for some or requiring if they put it in there some pretty moderate expectations in terms of you have to you know report annually to DEQ uh, about your discharges and that has to be publicly available. Finally, well, that, it's stuff that should have been the way it was all along. You might have to submit to a few more inspections. 
yeah, there are basically no inspections. I mean, they, they, you come in, the inspectors come in, they're there for like a minute and they leave. Records are held on site at these facilities. The, the, the system of accountability in the hog industry in eastern North Carolina right now is a complete joke. True. Yeah, I mean, it's a true contradiction to say we don't do anything, but we're not going to be transparent and prove to anyone that we don't do any do any harm to the environment or the communities. If 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 that were the case, then you would want to be as transparent as you possibly could, because the transparency would make the other stuff go away. If in fact it were true. Well, let me tell you how this kind of secret record keeping on site affects just routine reporting. Here's an example. We've had the hog trials. The number five is going on right now. And the first three of the... Which the the industry has lost. Yes, the industry has lost and lost badly. So the industry has said they are going to depopulate the farms that were on the losing side of those important. The industry, the depopulation, the removal of animals off of these facilities is not a result of the trial. It's not a result of the jury. It's not a result of environmentalists. It's not a result of the judge. It's 100% the result of the industry. Using the farmers, in my opinion, as human shields. And removing the farms, well, the or removing the pigs from the farms. Well, the very la- the fourth trial involved an owned and operated farm of Smithfield. I have asked DEQ, is Smithfield because Smithfield isn't talking to me? What? Yeah, I know. Please, you everyone, you didn't sit get down. Their Christmas card? I'm I'm not. I didn't get a ham. Wouldn't eat it anyway. But anyway, so I asked, did Smithfield depopulate their own own farm? I can't know that. Because those records are kept on site, and I'll have to file an open records request, and DEQ will have to... I mean, it's just... I should be able to go online and see if they depopulated their own farm. 100%. That's a, it's an absolute, absolute joke. Uh, and, and yet people were clutching their pearls at the idea that they would have to be accountable in any way, or that there might be an unannounced an inspection every now and then. or report. Right. Yeah. And, you know, they could and this came out in a previous hog trial where Christine Lawson, who's over the animal feeding operation, said, admitted that they go in once a year for maybe 35 to maybe 60 minutes. And she did answer in the affirmative that you could violate every other day of the year. And do it without any kind of penalty. Well, the other unspoken thing uh, that came out of this um, event this past week was the kind of presence of the the looming presence of the poultry industry. So this permit will apply to swine operations, to cattle operations, and to a certain very, very, very tiny limited set of poultry operations. The vast, vast majority of poultry uh, operations taking place in the state are basically totally unregulated. And a recent report from Waterkeeper and the Environmental Working Group uh, noted that the waste coming from poultry is almost equivalent to the waste coming from the swine operations at this point now, because even since Hurricane Matthew, between Matthew and Florence, there were, and we don't know for sure because there's no way to track these things, the the, the state does not track how many gigantic poultry factories pop up and where they, they pop up. They don't know where they are. Yeah, they don't know where they are. So it's it's keepers like you and, and affiliated organizations who are trying to track this just mm-hmm. kind of like you know, dogging it across the countryside. And we know that a bunch of these things popped up 
after Hurricane Matthew when there was a lot of damage and before Florence. There were millions of chickens that were dead. There was a piece in the News, News and Observer about how they're trying to get rid of, dispose of all these chicken carcasses. It's completely crazy. And there's no permit for these things at all. None. No. Dry litter, it's just, it doesn't exist. So, you know, honestly, like that, that almost, almost makes me <laughs> sympathetic to uh, the to the hog producers because they're sitting here and, you know, there's a, a permit. It's not a particularly strict one, but it's something. And they're looking at their neighbors and there are chicken houses popping up everywhere and they can just do whatever they want. It's the wild, wild west. I'd be mad at that. Except yeah. that they also co-locate. Mm-hmm. Of those poultry farms on some of the existing hog mm-hmm. farms. So they, I mean, some farmers are looking at their neighbors and going, well, they're getting away with it. But some of them are like, well, I can also get away with the mm-hmm. poultry on here. And if you go into like stocking. And we're talking head- millions of birds here. Folks. Yeah. We're not, we're not talking a couple hundred. We're talking millions. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the images that were produced with this report from above, from an airplane, and you're looking down at fields and you can see the waist and feathers just covering like football field sized areas of land. And that stuff is getting blown everywhere. Mm-hmm. It washes into the rivers. It's a major, uh, major pollutant and contributor to, uh, you know, the terrible air quality uh, and and to a certain extent water quality in eastern North Carolina. So that's another thing that that has got to be addressed at some point. But we are almost out of time. Is there anything else that uh, y'all have your eyes on? I'm going to Statesville on Tuesday because they are going to have another permit hearing, and I'm assuming that'll be more chicken. In folks. the middle of poultry country. Yep. Yeah. So. And cattle too. And cattle. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got my eye on the North Carolina legislature right now because mm-hmm. there's a bill percolating. Well, there are lots of bills percolating. <laughs> one related to sediment and some other things related to the environment, but one very important one is House Bill 39, which wants to adopt the osprey as the North Carolina state raptor huh hmm it's interesting right okay so i i mean i like i don't have anything against the osprey i like the osprey we don't have a state raptor we have a state bird it's the cardinal state um, raptor i you know what i might go with the great horn owl myself yeah, or barn owl yeah yeah actually like the barn owl is great so uh or yeah if you go to falls lake though paddle around you will see the osprey flying around and they're gigantic nests everywhere and they dive into the water it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, so I got nothing against the Osprey. They're fishing all over eastern North Carolina, and hopefully the fish they're eating aren't too contaminated. Can I put a plug in for beavers? I don't think beavers <laughs> are as bad as people say they are. There's new science that says they actually help the ecosystem. So let's but just back off on the beavers. Do you want the beaver to be the state raptor? Uh, I want it to be the state beaver. We need I mean, state a beaver. flying beaver would be pretty gnarly. <laughs> that would, yeah, a beaver with talons and teeth. All right. Well, I'll be watching that one. There, also, there's a bill that wants to make ice cream the official frozen treat of oh North Carolina. Uh, this is where I put my plug Who in for cares? Loco Pops. But anyway. What if it's made with soy milk? I don't think we can call that milk on this show or <laughs> anywhere in the state of North Carolina. Okay. Um, that'll have to do it. we got to wrap up. Thank you both for being here once again. I enjoyed the conversation. This is The Dirt. You are listening to WNCU-FM 90.7 in Durham, North Carolina. Check us out on Twitter at The Dirt FM. See you next time.